compass isn't working. I know what we've told you sounds hard to believe, but there was a time when no one believed that a woman could fly across the Atlantic. Now, people are able to travel between the stars. The galaxy is full of many different species. For instance, this young woman isn't human. She's an Okampa. I've been on expeditions all over the world and I've seen people do all kinds of strange things to their bodies. That doesn't mean that Martians have invaded Earth. Transfer complete. And welcome to Subspace Transmissions, the podcast where two Trek fans step into the arena and tackle the best, worst, weirdest, wildest, and everything in between that Star Trek has to offer. I'm Cam Smith, and join me on the bridge. This is Tyler Orton, circumnavigating the globe one drink at a time, just like uh, our old friend uh, Fred Noonan, the uh, the drunkard, <laughs> <laughs> the drunkard thirty seven, the 37s, You say, Tyler? Yeah, uh, this season finale that wasn't. Huh? Mm. What are you talking about? Cam, this is actually, and I did not know this for years until after this aired, but uh, The 37s, although it was the season two premiere, it was originally filmed and produced, uh, put in the bank as the season finale for season one way back in the day. Uh, It looked as if they had enough episodes to go on. I believe the total counts that aired in season one was 16, and I think they put forward uh, four more episodes going into season two. And, uh, yeah, so they just went with this as a season premiere. And uh, our season one finale, Cam, what was that? The, the, the best season finale of all? That was Learning Curve, of course, where we got to see Neelix's cheese and a lot of jogging. Yeah, uh, we've ridiculed that episode uh, countless times. I, I, I think it counts as one of the worst, you know, season finales uh, ever made uh, for Star Trek. But it wasn't intended to be. And I, I, So the question is... We already know that the 37s, without any debate, would be a much stronger season finale than Learning Curve, of course. But, you know, the question I think we we can talk about as we go through this episode is, you know, the 37s, is it a better season finale for season one? Or does it make for a better season premiere for season two? Because either way, it kind of it kind of concludes with a bit of a familial feeling, you know, the, the mm-hmm. crew coming together, showing their dedication being a crew aboard Voyager. So is that how you kind of send off this season or is this how you kind of start a season, you know, with that kind of hope? Um, This kind of hope that we got at the end of the episode, Cam, uh, not necessarily the same kind of hope that we got in uh, Star Trek Discovery season four or anything like that. (laughs) Um, I think that was about communication, Tyler, not hope. And and tethers. Uh, And another C word. What was the other one? Uh, oh, Cam, Cam. Hey, 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 connection. That's what it connection. was, connection. Okay, okay, right. I didn't know where you were going there. Yeah. Um, <laughs> okay, so I, look, like, uh, this one, what was your first reaction when it aired? Because I, I remember it was actually being um, promoted quite a bit. I was reading about it. I, I, I don't know if Star Trek Magazine was out yet, but they're uh, like sci-fi mags that I would uh, buy in the store, and they were really promoting the Amelia Earhart um, thing. And even as like a kid, I knew who Amelia Earhart was, and so this is cool. They're also promoting, you know, Sharon Lawrence from NYPD Blue. 
I wasn't as familiar with her um, at the time, but uh, apparently she was kind of a big shot TV star at the time. Uh, I've later learned she wasn't quite the big shot. I, I thought she was when I was like eight or nine, but um, there you go. Uh, and so there's a lot of hype going into season two for me. And I, I thought this one uh, delivered. Um, it's been a long time since I watched it. Um, overall, I mean, I, mean, I think this is a strong episode, but I, I, I can um, I, I can make some... Um, cutting critiques about maybe the overall message that they're trying to send here um, and some of the questions they bring up, especially towards the end of this. But what, what's your overall takeaway from the 37s camp? The 37s is not a perfect episode, um, but it is an episode that I have a lot of affection for because I think what it does really well is like capture the spirit of what Star Trek Voyager is trying to do. And I agree like i think this makes a stronger season one finale not because it's well just a better episode than learning curve i mean there's lots of episodes better than learning curve i don't necessarily think they would be the better season finales for season one i think what it is about this episode is we have seen through season one this crew gets stranded in space go through some serious trauma uh dealing with like um the vidians uh there's some I think the Kazon had the Kazon shown up. Yeah, they're in season one, of course. They're, they're uh, in the season and, pre or series premiere, Cameron. Yeah, of course, the caretaker, and then like various other dangers, and so like there's a lot more stakes. I think when you get to the end of that year-long journey, whatever you want to call it, TV year, to be at a position where the crew has a <laughs> rich, fertile new land that they could perhaps move into that we hear through exposition must be pretty dynamic. Um, we never actually see it, but I hear it's great. Uh, the idea that they choose to stay with Janeway for the journey continuing onwards feels like a final kind of button on the journey of season one. You can say it is sort of a um, reestablishing as to what the show's mission is for season two. But I think in terms of like bookending a season, it feels like it really does belong there. Yeah, I, I mean, obviously, this is a better episode than, uh, you know, to, to bookend a season than... Uh say learning curve of course and, and i think we can debate whether this works better you know in a vacuum like let's for take learning curve out of the question does this work better in a vacuum as a season finale or a season premiere so we can go through that as we discuss this episode broader uh and you brought up another good point that i think where, where some of the things happening here doesn't quite land for me you know um we hear about the three cities uh, that humans have uh, now colonized after this big uh, uprising. And 15 generations later, uh, there's 300,000 uh, people. Um, and uh, we never get to see these cities. And here's a problem. If the big tension of the episode, you know, take the uh, the, the flash of, uh, of uh, Amelia Earhart out of the equation here. The mm -hmm. big tension of the episode is whether or not people are from the crew are going to stay behind on this planet filled with humans. Um, it's hard to have a lot of that tension if you don't know or you don't see what these settlements are all about. Like, are they kind of miniature versions of Earth? Do they feel like their best efforts to replicate the 1930s? And then how is that iterated upon over the course of like 300 or so years? So that kind of saps a lot of the fundamental tension from this episode uh, that like it, they did not skip on the budget though there's a lot of location mm. shooting um the vfx uh looks spectacular like with that yeah. landing of voyager those shots whenever we'd see the crew like walking towards the camera and voyager had been landed on the ground and you could see it in the background i mean i was in awe 
not just you know back in the 90s but like right now you know and, and so i i i'll get into some other questions about the uh the tension of this episode but um Tell me a little bit more about your thoughts. You brought it up here about like not being able to see those uh, cities that were alluded to um, and explicitly referenced here in this episode that brings up the central tension. Yeah, like I, I agree. Like I think this episode where I think it kind of gets a little clunky and there's so much I admire about it that we'll talk about through the rest of the episode. But like it builds up that central, um, you know, the city that these crew members may move to. and it isn't really revealed until the last like what like it's 35 minutes into the episode or something like that you know it's it's past i think the half hour point so it kind of feels almost like a delayed um you know debate or issue for Janeway to ponder much of the episode is kind of like killing time with things like hostage crises which i know yeah. are a popular thing on star trek but they're also <laughs> kind of like time killers and you're also delaying what these aliens are that are observing them from the rocks that look like they're from, you know, the original series or something like that. And I think like had you built that up earlier and established what this colony was, it's easy for a character to say, oh, we have three magnificent cities. And then we cut to Janeway, you know, later on in the day being like, well, those cities were something else. I think it would have probably helped the episode if you'd been able to visit them in some way they don't have to be huge enormous expensive locations just give me like <laughs> like a small like little little village setting in like california and i can be like okay or maybe the backstage lot you know where they filmed all the gangster movies from the 1930s and <laughs> you know it's like the alternate earth scenario <laughs> well yeah I mean, everybody were just like a piece of the action or something like that sure give me like the classic star trekky thing and i think that that would work better because it does feel an episode that I thought of, and in no way to compare the two in quality, but the episode The Thaw, where it's like set up as like one character's story, and then it keeps switching. So by the end, it's like, wait, is this a Janeway story now? That's kind of how I felt with the 37s, where it kept shifting up what the story was. So like the last 15 minutes, we're dealing with, you know, a, a quandary that was not really baked into the premise from the beginning. I would say that this is a Janeway story through and through, though. Like I, it is. I, I know that I know what you're saying in terms of like, hey, maybe now we're spending time with uh, Kim and Bolana discussing this tension, you know. But I and I, I'd say overall, this is definitively a Janeway story, especially when you consider kind of the Amelia Earhart factor of it all. Yeah, I don't really refer to like shifting characters in this one, more in terms of like what the focus of the story is. Okay, sure. Yeah, yeah. And but I agree with you. You know, like first of all. It's a crisis situation, which is a total time killer in uh, both Star Trek and television overall. I, I mean, I, I, even like um, Past Tense, which I think is a really strong two-parter from Deep Space Nine. Um, mm -hmm. You know, uh, some of that crisis stuff uh, where that one woman's screaming nonstop uh, <laughs> throughout it. It got, it got a little old at, at a certain point. But uh, Cam, um, there's no bigger time killer in Star Trek than car chases, which we got... Lots of uh -huh. in uh, season two of uh, Picard. Could you imagine if they uh, used that uh, beat up uh, pickup truck uh, for a car chase <laughs> sequence on this planet? You know, the, the biggest time killer of all. I was so happy when I was sitting through like the first 15 minutes of this episode. And it's just like <laughs> actors in Star Trek uniforms standing around a truck, like explaining what it is. And I'm like, this is what I love about old Star Trek. And I guess this is now old Star Trek is that yeah. there's just something about like the process of it, of watching, you know, these Starfleet members 
take something that is very mundane to us and just like examine it through the lens of people who are in wonder of it. When I'm watching characters be like, is this rust? How can we have rust? And then Janeway being like, alfalfa seedlings. <laughs> I'm like leaning forward in my seat being like, this, give me more of this Kurtzman factory, like less explosions and ship battles. Give me more alfalfa seed investigation. <laughs> she she sure took a big whiff of that horse manure. Uh, <laughs> it's like, whoa, okay. You've identified what kind of manure. Yeah, not only that, like she knew exactly like what type of manure it was. I, I don't know that I would recognize the smell of like cow manure versus horse manure from a smell. Okay, Mr. Hoity Toity there, um, oh, well. Cameron Smith. Um, here, Here's the thing that it might uh, uh, hurt you a little uh, if I suggested this, but uh, I wonder if this episode would have just been served better if uh, you get a captain's log and um, it, it's Voyager saying, we're responding to an SOS signal that we picked up. We cut mm. out all of that truck stuff and there, there's maybe more time, uh, more budget to spend on maybe visiting like the, the backlog for like one of these like Earth-like cities, you know, and um, you know, like some of the hostage stuff is, is pretty dopey as well. And I, I think there's still a kind of a fundamental, fun, interesting thing you can do with the 37s without it being like the hostage crisis. You, you, you cut out the truck, you cut straight to them on the planet, and then encountering these cryogenically frozen folks. Um, you know, you really should have had Kess wearing a beanie, much like Spock did uh, <laughs> when he turned human in Strange New Worlds this past season. Uh, yeah. but you know, and I, I think you could have done something more interesting than like the drunk navigator, um, whipping a gun out and, uh, like, uh, saying like, I'm going to blow this lady's head off, you know? And, um, you know, what I will say that that actually served like really well though, is you get Janeway, you know, opening up to Earhart and saying, look, mm -hmm. this is what's going on. Like, could you imagine this is possible? There is a way to find out. And I actually thought that that sequence, um, maybe we had to deal with the hostage situation of it all, which is a little like lame, but I actually don't mind that if it brought us to that sequence there. No, to me, like what makes this episode really sing is the relationship between Janeway and Earhart. And it, going back to the, like, does this feel like a season finale? It does feel like, you know, you kind of had like Catherine Hepburn in space off the bat, on Star Trek Voyager with the the way they styled Janeway. But like to kind of end that season in theory with like this comparison between her and Earhart, these two people that went into the unknown. And, you know, we never knew what happened to Amelia Earhart until this episode aired. Uh, and Janeway is someone who has also vanished into, you know, God knows where. And anyone on Earth would be like, we don't know what happened to her either. Like there's a mystery hanging over them. And there's also like an iconography now around Janeway that I think like this comparison and relationship really like solidifies and makes Janeway that much more of a I think powerful character in terms of how the way the way the audience sees her yeah I, you know also there, there's some great questions she brings up here you know like um look I'm a captain I can't have a vote every time mm. there's a big decision to be made and I'm just like yes Thank you. Like, um, this is kind of setting up a, a lot of what is going to inform Janeway's character moving forward. And I, I like that kind of stuff there. And that's really what works for me. Although, um, it seems to me that does Janeway know how to read Cam? Uh, does she struggle with the English language? Because uh, us as the audience, we can see, like clearly see Earhart's name tag. And it's very yeah. obvious what it was. But Janeway's going, <laughs> eh, eh? <laughs> R? <laughs> I was like, yes. Like, 
<laughs> like you're putting the letters together. Good for you. It, it's like we're 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 literally the camera's literally from her POV. <laughs> like we're like okay, uh, get on with it. Um, that's a case. Maybe the um the production crew could have uh, put a little bit more um, condensation on that uh, cryo chamber. Maybe she needed uh, Kirk's glasses from Star Trek Two. <laughs> maybe that would have uh, that, that would have introduced yet another time paradox, right? It would. But I think one thing that like might have helped in in place of the hostage crisis, it's fine if you have a momentary issue like that, because I can understand why these people would be scared uh, encountering the crew here. But like you have various other people who were thought out in the 37s there. And like, what about the dynamic between them? Like you really only focus on primarily, you know, the Sharon Lawrence, Amelia Earhart, and then, um, Tackleberry, David Graff's character. And there are other ones who have little bits where they, you know, interject a line or two. But like, if there was a genuine debate between these characters, that would be more compelling Star Trek to me than like a hostage crisis. Uh, Cam, for the listeners, I, I think you might be overestimating their their deep, deep knowledge of the Police Academy series. Um, <laughs> do, do you want to explain who Tackleberry is? Yes, there was this 1980s uh, movie series. There was seven of them. Uh, they began with Police Academy and ended with Mo Mission to Moscow. And Tackleberry was one of the main members of the team. Uh, David Graff played him. And uh, I think he was in all seven of the films. I, I can believe that there. Um, uh, <laughs> Fred Noonan's character did not work for me throughout this episode. Um, it just, it, it, like, it fell flat. Like, was he known to be, like, uh like a drunk navigator like in real life because <laughs> if not that, that's a real stain on this man's legacy here <laughs> you also have him not only is he pulling uh out guns um like downing flasks the first person that he ordered around you know uh was the black guy and yeah. he, he's like i'm just like okay it's a little awkward um the other thing that, that was interesting is I, you bring up the dynamic that could have been explored with the other 37s here. Um, we, we have that farmer, you know, and mm. like he's kind of defining like, hey, you know what? I see so many possibilities here to farm. And um, the Japanese soldier, I don't know how his worldview is going to translate into this particular um, settlement, uh, These this society here. His reason yeah. for staying is, there's Japanese people here. And I'm like, okay. Um, <laughs> Doesn't that feel like 1990s uh, white person writing? <laughs> yeah, oh, there's a lot of that uh, going on yeah, in yeah. this episode. I, I was also very worried that um, Neelix was going to share uh, a much more offensive dish with the like <laughs> Japanese guy. And I'm glad they just kept it to rice and fish. I was just like, okay, that's not super problematic. Um, sure. You know, but uh, one of, okay, one of the other big examples of like 1990s writing was like they come back from the act break, and yeah. uh, uh, Fred Noonan says, "Do you know who you've kidnapped here? This is Amelia Earhart." I'm just like, yeah, that's for everybody who just kind of like uh, fluttered in like halfway through a, the commercial break, maybe missed the first like 12 minutes of this episode, and that's not the kind of writing exposition that you're going to get in like kind of this new streaming age. You know, so like, there's a lot of very 1990s uh, uh, TV writing that that was on display here. If I were um, <laughs> Garrett Wong, I would have protested when they're like, "You have to be the guy who says who's Amelia Earhart," <laughs> because I would be like, "Wait, you're giving that line to me versus like the alien characters who might not actually know? <laughs> like, why not have Neelix say that?" Yeah, actually, that's <laughs> that's actually a very good point. <laughs> um, 
but in all fairness, how famous do you think she's going to be, um, you know, 300, 400 years in the future? Well, I did have a question for you because Janeway says that Amelia Earhart is one of her great inspirations in life. So I was just curious from you, Tyler, who is your 17th century inspiration in life? Um, oh, 17th century. Here's the problem, Cam. You're going to like put me, you're going to embarrass me and like I'm going to point to historical figures. Yeah. And uh, I, I, they're actually maybe from the 16th century uh, or sure. the 18th century. So that's my problem. But um, I don't know, folks from the 1600s that have inspired me, um, you know, uh, I, I would have to say um, Jesus Christ, Cameron. <laughs> there you go. There's no answer better than that one. Yeah. <laughs> I'll say Shakespeare. I don't think he was 17th century either. Uh, no he wasn't mm, yeah um, but isn't it always awkward when somebody is asking you know what historical figure would you want to have dinner with and like people's go-to answers are either jesus or hitler and it's like <laughs> are they what? they say well, hitler yeah people often say oh, like wow. you want to meet a historical and i'm not saying like have dinner with hitler but uh yeah if you'd ever meet a historical figure people are like uh hitler like i don't know yeah, he doesn't seem like he would be a very good hang at all. He seems no, like he'd be pretty unpleasant. No. Uh, I'm no. good, thanks. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah, I'm good with uh, 16th century J Jesus Christ, you know. Um, I guess yeah. this is after he's come back, uh, you know, from the resurrection or something. Um, uh, I, I might be getting my Bible wrong. 16th century Bible. I'll, I'll hang out with Shakespeare, because then we can see if the movie Anonymous, directed by Roland Emmerich, was right or not. <laughs> yeah. Um, again, I think you might be 100 years too late. Oh, I think I am. I don't think I'm correct in my time period. I think it was the whole 17th century was really just because of the comparison from Voyager where it's about 400 years. But yeah, I, I got you there. I got you there. Yeah. So, um, okay. So I want to get into some of these other questions that this is, you know, bringing up here. Um, you know, so Chakotay says, you know, uh, Voyager can't operate with fewer than 100 people. And so that's the tension. Yeah. It is, you know, are about what? I think 40 people going to leave and mm -hmm. i i this is like would you buy this you know like if 40 people like i don't think any of the bullions or the betazoids or the vulcans would be interested in sticking behind knowing that yeah we've got a journey but we're going towards the alpha quadrant like so it'd have to be 40 humans here how amazing does this planet have to be how much does it have to feel like 20th century earth for it actually to be tempting for 40 people. Like, that seems like a lot of folks uh, that they could potentially lose after only being on this journey for, let, let's, you know, this is the uh, season two premiere for, let's say, about a year now. Well, that's the thing. It's too short a period of time, I think, to be on this journey for that many characters to leave. Um, I do think there might be one. Sure. <laughs> the fact that there was zero, I was like, ah, I think there would be one or two. That would be like, you know what? I I'm good. Like, they seem to really uh, be looking down on Baxter and Jarvin. Uh, they seem like those are the two most likely to flee. I think it it wouldn't shock me if there was like a couple in there because I think we've learned pretty well that it's very difficult to get 100% agreement on anything. <laughs> so, this kind of brings up the, yeah. the next question, though, is like, you know, you're going on this journey with the Voyager crew. Um, a fair number of people die. Um, Mm -hmm. Have they like? I'm sure the crew would have come across other planets, or you know, space stations, or potential homes where maybe some crew members are like, you know what, um, this seems really risky. A lot of my friends are croaking. 
uh, I, I've met the love of my life on the ship. I want to just settle down on this quiet little moon. And what if Janeway said, no, you can't. I order you back on the ship. Like, yeah. what what's going to happen there? Uh, does Janeway have to say yes? Or what if she forces them back? What if they refuse to do their duties? Does that mean that they're confined to their quarters for the next 70 years? Do, do they get access to the holodeck? Um, are they in the brig like uh, Tom was yeah. uh, in 30 days? Like uh, that to me is actually a, an even more interesting question is, you know, like, like, can people freely leave if they want to? In this particular instance, Janeway said, sure. What if this continued on where they only maybe had, uh, you know, maybe 99 people left um, on the crew? Would, would they be recruiting aliens, kind of like what they did with mm. uh, Neelix and Seven and Kess to come serve aboard at that point? Like, these are some of the questions that I, I kind of wish, like, Voyager had taken the time to address over the course of its run. Well, do you think they had 100 crew members? Uh, near the end of Year of Hell? Oh, that, that's a good question. Uh, well, literally, they, they had to jettison all of them off to uh, in shuttlecraft and um, and lifeboats, so they were operating with a total skeleton crew. Yeah. Like, but I think the idea there was, like, they would reconstitute the crew at a certain point. Like, this was... Right. That was more of a stopgap measure versus how do we survive this journey back to the Alpha Quadrant that would take over... At that point, they were looking at a decades-long journey, but they kept saying like they were always looking at ways to shorten their trips, which they did. Whether is you know, a bit of a wormhole or a gift from Kess, uh, some transwarp conduits that came in handy at certain points. You know, I think by the time we got to the end of this series, I think maybe, if I recall correctly, Voyager had maybe shaved off thirty-five years from their trip home. Okay, yeah, I think like this episode actually raises a really interesting question that as you said like they didn't really deal with it which is like if Janeway is saying you know you guys are free to go if you'd like that kind of like establishes an open door policy yeah. with like Voyager that I don't know like any planet they land on they could be like you know what I like the looks of this place I can get like a beachside home here check you later um you a know. replicator <laughs> I've got everything I want. They go to that planet where Neelix got the map and be like, well, hold on. I think I can get a good vacation <laughs> home here. See you later. Um, it's the sort of thing that would have been interesting to really grapple with in future seasons where things got really bad because then you could have characters actively wanting to go. But it's tough because, as you said, like, what are you going to have? Like Janeway punishing crew members constantly, trying to uphold the Starfleet code um, and, you know, sticking to duty. I, I think it was probably. Maybe it was smart for the series just because it would have it would have been like biting off a lot to chew on to have the one story here of Janeway offering the, you know, the possibilities and the crew saying we're with you no matter what. If this was episode in which we were dealing with one Captain Burnham and the episode concluded with either the cargo bay packed with people or the cargo bay with zero people, I think it would have ended the same way, which is uh, Burnham would have been crying. Um, I was going to say they'd all be in the cargo bay, Get me but off. throwing a celebration for her. Oh, okay. <laughs> Thank you for being <laughs> such an amazing savior that uh, we would, of course, never want to leave. Yeah. How many of the Star Trek captains do you think would offer this option that Janeway did? Well, I'm also even surprised that Janeway would. I don't know if season six, season seven, Janeway would, you know? And so yeah. we are earlier on in the run of the show. I, You know, like the, the closest I could guess is maybe... 
Archer, maybe Pike? Because I don't see Picard or Cisco doing this. You know? Mm-hmm. Uh, but okay, would Burnham? Um, I think so. Because there was like, it's a little different scenario, but there was like the option of who wanted to go to uh, the, the far off future. And she was going to go just on her own and let the crew all just go home. So I, I think she would be open to letting people settle if if need be. Okay. She wasn't captain at that point. Um, no. Fair enough. But I know what you're getting at. But like Burnham is all about taking on the sacrifice herself. True. Yes. So I think she would be like, I will do whatever I need to to do the best for my crew. Like, let them have happiness. I'm willing to suffer for them. Okay. Um, I'm sure she would have reprogrammed the EMH to become the ECH uh, much quicker than we saw in the run of Voyager. Probably. Where do you think Kirk would stand on this one? Oh, that's a good question. Uh, he would say no. Tough shit. Yeah. Yeah. You're, you're... He would not even, there would not even be a second of him even like pondering this question. <laughs> well, who's the captain that you think would ponder the most? I think Archer's a really good call. Uh-huh. Um, I could see definitely, Ar- maybe not Archer in season three when he was like a little more intense. <laughs> yeah. But generally speaking, I could see Archer making that call. Um, definitely not Cisco. Um, I, Pike's an interesting one. I don't know. Like Pike is... He's such a dad, though. You know? He is. That, that yeah. more patronly sort of figure, much like how Janeway kind of became kind of known as the den mother over the years. Yeah, because like even with like Uhura... In season one, Strange New Worlds, where she was like, I don't know that I want to be in Starfleet. Pike was like, well, we're just happy to have you right now. Uh, uh, he was, I think, I, more I, than happy to let her have her experience and leave. I really didn't like that Uhura storyline, just just for the yeah. record. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But I think like that kind of speaks to Pike. Like He was willing to support her along the way and give her this you know, great Starfleet experience. But he wasn't trying to like hold her to like the, uh, you know, the guilt of duty. Yeah, okay. Um, do you buy that uh, Harry would be so willing to contemplate settling down on this planet? Not a chance. No, I thought this was actually like maybe the one character moment that really didn't connect with me. I mean, Harry is someone who (laughs) wanted to go out to space, but also, you know, we had the episode non sequitur. Like he wants to see his parents again. Like he wants to get home. And and Libby, yeah, he wants to get home and play the clarinet once again. And I mean, like, the fact that, like, after one year, he's like, well, you know what? I might as well settle down here. I think it just rings really, really false for him. I think there's other characters that would have been more compelling, perhaps, to have that position. Maybe, like, even like a Tom Paris who feels disconnected from everything. What if there are like maybe, I don't know, 20 people? Now let, let's say uh, 25 people decided to stick around on that planet. And then uh, the series ends as the series ends and uh, Voyager gets home. Do you think the people's family members would be like, um, hmm, would you guys mind trying <laughs> to find a way back there to fetch our families? That, I mean, we got super excited when we found out that the USS Voyager had returned home, but. Uh, we had no idea that our families were going to settle like in the distant corner of the galaxies and we'd never see them again. Would the families believe them when they say, oh, yeah, we, we left them on this like colony uh, you know, in whatever this section of space? It's like, are you sh-? like, here's the thing. If like one of these crew members got like vivisected by the Vidians, they're not going <laughs> to necessarily show up back at home and be like, well, let me tell you what happened to your, you know, uh, family member. Yeah, no kidding. Uh, 
the whole like settlement on the uh, you know paradise planet is a lot uh, easier p- uh, pill to swallow. Don't worry, your son. He got his face completely ripped off <laughs> and <laughs> torn right from the skull and placed on a mm. Vidian's face. At all in an effort to impress Belana Torres. That's how he died. But don't worry, he didn't suffer. <laughs> yeah. Um. I I did like like some of the small little moments with like Neelix, like um, saying like I don't think anyone will will leave. Well, maybe. Well, maybe some people might. Well, shit, I never really thought about it. Like he just seemed completely dumbfounded <laughs> and, and like caught off guard by that question. There, I would have liked a little more out of Kess. And like she was along on the mission, you know, having to hide that she was an Okampa. But I would have liked maybe like just a little bit more, like give me a moment where she gets to converse with someone in the team or something. Because I always like one of my favorite things in Star Trek is episodes where uh, there's like the episode First Contact, for example, or Who Watches the Watchers, where you have people that don't understand Starfleet introduced into the world of Starfleet. And I think like it would have been interesting to have Kess talk to one of the people in the 37s about being in Okampa and making this new home on Voyager. And the episode definitely has time for that if they're willing to suck up time with a, t- with a hostage crisis. I think moments like that are what really work for me. And that is also why I really enjoy this episode is because of the Janeway Earhart stuff. You get a lot more of that kind of Star Trek wonder. One of the things I was wondering, speaking of the word wonder is the the Japanese soldier didn't really have that much to do. Uh, he seemed no. pretty chill. Uh, do you think this... Like, I wish they had kind of explored something more with him, especially if Earhart had essentially been sent on, like, a spy mission on behalf of the United States government just before, you know, I guess four, uh, four or five years before Pearl Harbor. Um, yeah. Do you think maybe this is originally supposed to be, like, a Nazi who... Like, it, it's it's hard to become, like, sympathetic with a Nazi. You know, like, oh, yeah, we're going to have a Nazi settle down with you people. Um, hope you enjoy his company on this planet here. Like, I, I just wonder if maybe they wrote a first draft and it's like, oh, that's a little problematic. Yeah, that would be a tough sell. I could see them doing that. Um, it was 1990s television. It was 1990s television. If it's a Nazi, I think the entire audience is waiting for a like... Um, like for that character to do something that's going to disrupt everything. Right. And so like maybe they wanted to not have that hanging over the entire story. Or else I think he would have had to die at the hands of the uh the either sellers the settlers or the crew. Yeah. And then you're just building up like a crisis you don't need in an episode that ultimately wants to make you feel good. Yeah, I'd say so. Um another kind of thing that kind of struck me is uh so of course, they established that Martians did not colonize Earth, but Mars was colonized in 2103. So mm-hmm. if Rene Picard is traveling to Jupiter's moons uh, as of 2024, don't you think that we would <laughs> be much closer to uh, colonizing Earth uh, than, you know, I guess would be 75 years in the future? Yeah, I, I know we've got like a, a third world war in between um, now and then, but I don't know. That, uh, yeah. that, that one just kind of uh, made me go, huh. I mean, I, I say, huh, to a lot of Picard <laughs> season two. Um, hmm. I mean, yeah, I don't know. Like, they didn't say anything about, like, when the Mars colony was created, like, say, in, like, Picard season one or anything, did they? No, not that I recall. I, but I wonder if we went and checked Memory Alpha, there might be know, something in there that about, you know, when was Mars colonized? Did, didn't Janeway, 
claim oh yeah remember janeway claimed that her great 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 grandmother was one of the first colonists of mars but it just turned out that she uh she briefly worked at a bookstore before they turned it into a mall <laughs> the millennium gate when we uh did our um wtf moments last week one of the ones that i didn't actually say on the show was the moment when i realized the millennium gate wasn't actually real <laughs> Cam, I, I i still to this day cannot contemplate how you thought it was a real thing they were so invested in it, and it was set in like a modern day. Yeah, yeah. But like, no, it wasn't though, because Cam, it was actually set in the future. It was um, it like the episode aired in like 1999, I think. Right. And this episode, uh, that episode, uh, why am I blanking on the name? But um, uh, 1159. 1159. But I think that episode took place in like the year 2003. Okay. Okay. But I realize you were watching it in probably the year 2012, but uh, yeah, yeah, maybe that's how I knew it wasn't real is because it was the year 1999 for me. And the talk of this millennium <laughs> gate in the year 2004 was not really anything that uh, I had to worry about. I just was like, wow, like, uh, I've never heard of this, but clearly it's an important monument that I should be visiting. <laughs> Key thing here, you never heard of it. <laughs> But also, it seems like the kind of crazy thing that one of the cities would have built in, like, the end of the 90s as we were getting towards the year 2000. And then after 2000, no one cares about it. But again, the episode took place in the year 2004, and they had to bulldoze yeah. the uh, bookstore to make way for it, you know. That's true. So, That's true. Um, the Briori. <laughs> they abducted 300 Earthlings. They have the technology mm -hmm. to get to the other side of the galaxy. And their mission is to kidnap people and enslave them? Like, if you have that kind of technology, <laughs> um, A, I don't think you need to go that far. And B, I certainly believe you can find better means of, of labor, you, you know, um, than, like, um, enslaving, like, sentient beings, you know? Yeah, that didn't really hold true. I think it was more just trying to, like, touch on the whole, like, um, you know, aliens coming to Earth and abducting people kind of concept because there is like a vintage feel to having these 37s characters so they're kind of going with vintage sci-fi there but it doesn't really hold water um because yeah they could easily go to much closer places you know i don't know grab kazon or malon or whatever else um i think it was just a convenience to tell that story i i think like they probably came up with what do you think they came up with first the idea of Amelia Earhart um, being found in space or just like the, the image of the truck floating in space. Uh, I, yeah, I, I... They're both good hooks, right? Like I could see either one of them kind of kicking off a story. I, I, I would believe that they're, uh, the thing they came up first was what if we found some cryogenically frozen humans and mm. build the story from there? Yeah. That's my best guess. I think the problem is like if that happens in the alpha quadrant, there's a lot of like easier ways to explain it when it comes to Voyager and you're finding these like, you know, humans in the Delta quadrant. I don't know that I necessarily buy the explanations. I, the smart thing they do is like the uh, aliens that kidnapped these people are completely off screen and only spoken about in the episode. So they can just kind of go, Ah, uh, we don't really know their ways. Whereas if they'd had one of these aliens pop up and start to explain it to us, it might just be even more eye-rolling. Well, uh, the other thing, I, uh, maybe I can headcanon it this way. 
sometimes history kind of gets lost. You know, it's 15 generations of humans. Maybe there is some sort of like myth of them overthrowing their oppressors, but maybe things weren't mm. exactly like that. Maybe that's not exactly what happened. Yeah, it, it's like, as you said, like their original reasoning is kind of unknown. So it's only kind of speaking about it in like legend, basically, from these descendants of those people. Okay. Um, I'm thinking about it now. You know, maybe one thing, as much as we dumped on the fact that we didn't see the cities, you could make the argument, well, maybe that's kind of, maybe our own imagination. Mm. Uh, A, it's cheaper, but B, it's maybe it's up to us to understand why there is so much tension going on, you know. Uh, I I still think it would have been better if we saw the cities, but it probably would have been more difficult to convince the audiences um, why this would have been a tough situation if the cities (laughs) look and seem kind of dopey. And it was kind of obvious, like, nobody yeah. would want to stick around. Right. I mean, they could have done kind of the majestic matte painting. It yeah. just called it a day there. Like, have the crew just kind of walking towards it. Kind of like, uh, you know, when you watch, like, Wizard of Oz, and they're, like, headed off to Oz, and you see the painting in the background that looks really beautiful. Like, maybe something like that. And then you could just cut to Janeway then talking about the actual city itself. It's just weird how they give no real sense as to any aspect of the city they don't even describe it in any sort of detail i know yeah that was kind of like uh i I don't know Uh, (laughs) they were probably operating uh on uh deprived uh sleep and you know uh (laughs) wanted to make their budget i'm sometimes things just don't kind of work out i i I can forgive them a little bit for that but i think it was one of kind of the uh the the failures here um i do want to give a shout out to uh john uh Rubenstein, who uh, played Mr. Evansville in this one. Uh, I think most folks in the into genre shows would recognize him as Linwood Monroe uh, from uh, Angel, uh, hmm. where he actually like is very clear uh, after watching this episode uh, that uh, he he was dyeing his hair in the thirty sevens because like uh, <laughs> yeah because yep. when you uh, watch Linwood Monroe on angel uh he, he's like a total silver fox there and uh i think his mm. character only showed up maybe five years later on angel or something like that so um but he was he played a really fun uh kind of uh um uh, evil sort of lawyer uh on angel so it was kind of cool i i didn't really put it together that uh he was on this episode kind of an iconic episode of voyager as well but uh it was just fun for me uh being a fan of his character on angel back in the day and really realizing what a die job <laughs> is going on here. The die job very much jumped out at me. It was a color that doesn't quite exist in nature yeah. <laughs> for men's hair, but uh, not uncommon to see also. And I, I really dug the um, costume design for their, uh, I don't know, warrior attire or whatever sure. it yeah. was. Like those helmets, like it's goofy looking, but it has that kind of TOS futuristic sci-fi feel that I really dig. It's very like retro sci-fi. So let's dig in on it. I I I I think you kind of uh, uh, talked your answer through, but maybe help me talk my answer through. Like, is this a better? Does this make for a better season finale, or does it make for a better season premiere? And, and um, like, I I want to think about this in a vacuum because like there are two ways to approach it. Like you know the um as you say this could be a perfect button on the adventure so far in which the crew says. Yes, we're with you. We are here on this mission moving forward. Uh, we'll come back after the summer and more adventures will follow. Or else we come back and it's the premiere and it's like, you know, this is our mandate. This is 
what our mission statement is about what the series is all about here. You know, we are a cohesive crew. We are encountering historical figures. What Star Trek loves to do that, you know. And, and so I, I'm, I, I, I debate. You know, uh, he, here's what I can't get over: is that learning curve was the season one finale. Um, yeah. I, I, and like, obviously, like season one, I think would have had been held in such high esteem if maybe this was the season finale. You know, um, I'm trying to think like, I, I, for a long time, I, I thought, you know, it works better as a premiere. Um, because if you look at some of the other options that were there at that time, like I, this is a much stronger option than like the, a couple of the other episodes that came out of the gate in season two. That was going to be my question actually to you. Like once they held over the 37s, did they just like not even have to worry about writing a season two premiere and just went with normal episodes or like would one of the episodes that exists have been the premiere well like you'd have to like dig into what the uh production like official production codes were i'm not i don't mean production yeah. code is like all old timey like censorship but like um you know like i like more like um how an episode was labeled you know, was it meant mm. to be in season one or season two? But I, like, I'm just looking like my belief is that they had every intention that this is going to be the finale and they're going to pick up season two with a normal season premiere. But Cam, I, I don't have kind of the production numbers in front of me, but I'm looking at like what kicked off season two. Yeah. You have initiations, which is that Aaron Eisenberg as a Kazon episode. Uh, mm -hmm. You've got uh, projections in which uh, the doctor is having that journey where he's uh, remember he encounters Reg Barkley. Um, yeah, we've got Elogium, um, the uh, Ocumpa puberty episode. Um, <laughs> I, I think maybe the, the, the only real contender here is episode five, which would have been non sequitur in which uh, Harry finds himself back in San Francisco in kind of a parallel universe. I think that could have been like the, the only real contender for a solid season two premiere i don't know that any of these are good setups for the season in terms of like reestablishing what the show is but i could see projections being a premiere if they want to have barkley in it like just being able to advertise barkley like a little bit of a crossover as your premiere maybe that was the thinking it's, it's just this is such a better season finale than what we got and it's also such a better season premiere than any of the alternatives for season two as well and so i'm just like how do you how do you like how do you want to end things versus how do you want to kick things off and i don't know i, I i'm going back and forth I, I think somebody could persuade me in the other direction but i ultimately think that this this works better as a season finale in which it's like hey we're a cohesive crew after our short time together we're jetting off for our next adventure. And I, I'm taking it in a vacuum. I'm subtracting learning curve from the equation here. I don't want that to influence me too much, but I think this ultimately does work as a better season finale than a season premiere. And it also like ends, you know, that first season with like a real sense as to who Janeway is as an icon as, and as a character. And then you're like, okay, moving on. This is the, this is the individual who's been set up through the season who we've gotten to know, but we understand why we want to follow her through subsequent seasons. Yeah. Into a low jump for season two. <laughs> <laughs> um, I this is a question that was kind of hanging over me as this episode ended. And I was doing my notes, but um, 
you know, you and I, we actually looked at it. We have not done it like a classic Voyager episode review since January of 2022. Yeah. It's been almost two years. And a lot of it's just because we've been packed with so many other uh, Star Trek episodes from, you know, Picard, Strange New Worlds, Star Trek Prodigy, uh, Lord Dex, uh, even Discovery all came before this one did, uh, or before we were able to get back to Voyager once again. I think you and I were actually quite shocked here. And um, I guess it brings me back to, to my feelings on how the, uh, only tangentially re- related here, but how, how the feelings are on how the Voyager documentary is moving and how, how its legacy is going to be remembered here. You know, we're, we're talking, yeah. it, it, it's one of those shows where you, you can never find a top 10 list in which anyone will agree. You know, there's always going to be top 10 lists where, you know, you look at TOS or TNG or Deep Space Nine and the same episodes are always going to appear on it. Uh, whereas you look at these Voyager mm-hmm. top 10 lists and everybody has wildly different episodes. And I, I just wonder what that means for like kind of encapsulating the legacy of this series when we get around to that Voyager documentary, which, um, you know, having been to the Voyager documentary panel in Las Vegas this past summer camp, um, <laughs> there's really no equivalent shepherd of this documentary the same way that the DS9 documentary, What We Left Behind, had in the terms of former showrunner, executive producer, uh, Iris Stephen Bear. Um, the, the clo- like somebody kind of asked that question, and the closest they came to was Lolita Facho, who was, I think, uh, like a script coordinator um, back in the day, um, well beloved, yeah. you know, but like uh, definitely not showrunner status or anything like that. It, it's no Ken Miller or uh, Jerry Taylor or Brandon Braga that's you know shepherding this documentary, and I'm. I just wonder if the message about what the legacy of Voyager ultimately is, it's going to mean so many different things for so many different people, which is the same for other Star Trek shows. But I just, I'm a little worried about this documentary kind of, um, I, I, you and I were absolutely blown away by the Deep Space Nine documentary mm-hmm. when we saw it in theaters to a packed room. And I don't know if we're going to be blown away by a Voyager documentary. Yeah, I mean, I am a donor on the Voyager documentary, so I guess I'm waiting for my physical copy to show up in the mail <laughs> one year. Um, How long ago did you put that money away? Oh, my God. Like, I don't even remember when I like donated that. Was it like three years ago? Four years ago? Uh, shortly after Endgame concluded. <laughs> yeah, uh, so it was a long time ago. Um, I think no matter what it is, I'll just like enjoy watching it and enjoy talking about it on the podcast. It could be just like the equivalent of like modern day special features on a DVD. And I'll just be like, well, you know, these things happen. Yeah. Uh, the DS9 one was so good that I don't know that I can expect that again. I-, I was a little concerned though. Like when we went to that Voyager documentary panel in Vegas and like, they're just like asking them kind of like what the focus is of the documentary, what the angle is. And they're just like, Star Trek Voyager. Yeah, I know. It was a show that happened. <laughs> and you're like, oh, okay, like, cool. Like, because the whole thing with the DS9 one, you had the whole, what's the hypothetical season eight? What has, you know, the binge generation done for DS9 and reframed what that show is versus the Voyager one? They're just like, well, it's, uh, you know, Voyager's been around a while. People like it. But I want to know, like, why people like it. You know, like I, I, yeah. I, I mean, I used to literally have a Star Trek Voyager like fan site that I ran, I operated, I posted my fan fiction, um, 
you know, I, I posted news and reviews of episodes. I was absolutely obsessed with it. Not like I, I want, uh, I want to understand like what got other people obsessed with it. For me, it wasn't so much the characters at the time as it was kind of the, the high concept stories that were moving along. But then for me, watching Deep Space Nine, it was actually more of the characters that I was ultimately drawn into. And so I, I wonder if they can kind of show that dichotomy. But ultimately, I think that the shows that are always the most successful or, or, the, or have like the greatest connection to fan bases are the ones where it's ultimately the characters are the anchor. Yeah. You know, that that's ultimately what I think the answer is. But I, I just, I, I don't have as much confidence <laughs> them really kind of having some sort of thesis statement about the show that they're going to dig into with this documentary. If I had to guess, they're going to say it was the characters as well. Yeah. I, I really think that's going to be the case. Going on the journey with those characters for the seven years in the Delta Quadrant. Um, like, that's the thing. It's like, I want to really examine, like, especially like Voyager, because Voyager was not regarded as a beloved show for quite a long time. Um, you know, I remember I wasn't watching it at the time, but I remember talking to people in high school about Voyager and like, they didn't care about it. Yeah. And it wasn't until like more, you know, recent days or recent years where you go to conventions and people are in love with Voyager and you look, you watch like the adoration for, you know, Kate Mulgrew in particular when she comes out, like that is a very important person in the eyes of fan of many, 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 many fans. And so I like, I want to have a sense as to like, what was it that caused, you know, so much, so much of the world and fandom to kind of wake up to what Voyager offered. And we're seeing it happen with Enterprise now, too. But, like, I want to really dive into, like, what was it that kind of brought Voyager to the forefront of Star Trek discussion? Um, I think it, uh, it'll be my fan website. That That's really what the answer is going to be. <laughs> uh, I'm still waiting for them to do, like, my confessional interview. But, uh, it, yeah, they'll get around to me eventually, I'm sure. And you had a script that you'd written on there, right? Not not a script, a a, a fan fiction uh, a story, a multi part. It, it involved a uh, a changeling who had infiltrated uh, essentially the Maquis ship and ended up on uh, in the Delta Quadrant, and that's how this um, changeling ended up on Voyager. And uh, I will say, despite how poorly written it was, uh, made by my twelve year old's um, writing skills at the time. I did get praise from it uh, online, so uh, yeah. that was very nice for me. Maybe they'll have a short segment where the actor who played Joe Carey reads it out <laughs> <laughs> on the documentary. Try, tries to navigate my spelling and grammatical errors there. Yeah, I, I just had a thought, as I mentioned Joe Carey, a somewhat obscure Star Trek Voyager character. Not to me. Um, should Well, should the final moments of the 37s, when Janeway walks into that... Uh, into that um, cargo bay should Samantha Wildman have been standing there. <laughs> that would explain her absence for much of the series. <laughs> <laughs> so that, that would imply that like uh, she's just leaving the child behind, I suppose. Yeah, that's, that's well, pretty tough. Neelix that's is there. Cool. Neelix okay. is there. <laughs> yeah, babysitter for a long time. That's right. That's right. Okay, so on that note, I think our assignment is complete. If you enjoyed listening to this podcast, we want to hear from you. Jump on over to the Facebook page at facebook.com slash subspacepod and let us know your thoughts on the 37s and also leave reviews for us wherever you get your podcasts. They are very much appreciated. Tyler, I didn't ask this question last week. What are we doing next week? Cam, we are getting around to uh, this long-promised episode that we wanted to do uh, where we're going to be ranking the first 10 seasons 
of this new era of Star Trek uh, being shepherded by one Alex Kurtzman here. We talked about the best episodes. We talked about the worst episodes. But uh, we've got 10 seasons of Star Trek to get through with uh, Picard, um, Discovery, Lower Decks, Prodigy, uh, Strange New Worlds. Uh, I think we're going to have a lot of fun ranking ultimately what's the worst um, and uh, what's the best. Yes, I'm looking forward to this. I remember when we were going to originally tackle the kind of Kurtzman era and do the best and worst and rankings in a single episode. And we quickly realized that that was completely <laughs> absurd to pack that much into a single episode. <laughs> We've now turned it into three episodes. That's right. That's right. True to us. Okay. And of Is course, that true to can... us? No, it's actually not. We, we've never really done that before. I don't think we've ever yeah. done a part one, part two, but uh, <laughs> poor planning. That's us, right? Yeah, that is us. Yes. Yeah. Okay. You can, of course, also find us on the Twitter. I'm at Cam. B is in Vintage Vehicles in Space. Smith. You can find me at Reporton. That's R-E-P-O-R-T-O-N-N as in Newton's Flask. <laughs> okay. So until next time, the arena is closed. <laughs> um, I think that was about communication, Tyler, not hope. And tethers. Uh, and another C word. What was the other one? Uh, oh, cam, cam. Hey, 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 connection. That's what it connection. was. Connection. Okay, okay. Right. I didn't know where you were going there.